had a chance this week on Wednesday to drop my daughter off at college. Uh, it's the same place my wife and I worked for a number of years while we also were getting graduate degrees. And we drove by a fence enclosure that we became aware of when we lived there on one side of town. And so there's a bit of property that's been fenced off. There are signs that say, do not enter, uh, do not disturb, drill, dig, or in any other way, bother the soil at this site. So it is what some of you have heard before as a Superfund site. It was the location of a fertilizer company in the 50s and all the way up to the 70s. They made insecticides and cotton defoliants, and they primarily used arsenic in their, in their, uh, their formulas. It so saturated the ground in that area that that property is not to be used indefinitely. It has to be, uh, many of the buildings and things that were there were buried, and so there's a mound, and like I mentioned before, the signs are and the warnings are, do not disturb this soil. Quite a bit escaped from that property, so there were even some, some of that material was put into train cars, which tracks run right through the middle of that, and dusted along the tracks. It got into some streams, and so there's some polluted soil that continues out from that essential site but that site has been determined off-limits indefinitely because of its issues. A term that we hear regularly in our culture, something that our current culture is fixated on, is the term sustainability. It's a term that first came on the scene in a British book in the 70s called Blueprint, Blueprint, excuse me, Blueprint for Survival. And it really took off with the creation of the field of ecology. At the heart of the discussion with sustainability is the ability to continue existing. Are we compromising our ability to continue to exist? Now physical material sustainability is not what I want to speak about today. I want to speak about something much greater than that. And I would like to call it, like Mr. Jones was using, I would like to, you to look at this subject through another lens, and you'll find that we're looking at some of the same material, but through a slightly different lens. I'd like to talk to you today about spiritual sustainability. The ability to exist constantly without end, or in other words, eternally. This is a central message of the Bible. What is it that will last? What goes beyond this life? and what is eternal, and what is of God. And it's contrasted, and we see this play out, as was mentioned earlier as well, with what is temporary, what is destructive, and what is short-term. Now I'm gonna begin the same place that Mr. Jones did with Adam and Eve, because it's a message that starts there. It was a favorite place if you were around in the uh, 80s, uh, late 70s, it was a favorite place for Mr. Armstrong to go. In fact, I would say many got tired of hearing about the two trees because he went there so often. But it's a substantial section of scripture. And while you're turning to Genesis 2, I would like to read a quote from our old Bible reading program that we put together back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And this is a quote that's in regard to this particular passage with Adam and Eve in chapters two and three. Quote goes like this. 
This may be one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Its importance for understanding our nature, our need, our condition cannot be underestimated. So we'll look at verse 16 of chapter 2 in Genesis, one you know, I'm sure, quite well. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. God presents them with a choice, one that had to do with sustainability. And in a very condensed narrative in this particular section of scripture, we see some very important issues. Issues that have to do with our nature, our need, and our condition. You know, it can't be understated that we are created beings. It's significant to our understanding, all of humanity, we are created beings. It's important that we are ever conscious of this fact. Our world around us is deceived to the point that they deny God. They believe that we've evolved and we determine our own path. Isn't this the same exact result of what Adam and Eve chose? So there are two really important things that come from this condensed narrative that we have in Genesis. First of all, God is our creator. He is the source of life now and after our death. He is our sustainer. There should be no discussion of sustainability without him. Secondly, as I mentioned already, we are created. We are created vulnerable. We can die. We are dependent. We don't have all of the answers. We are not in control. This is our irrefutable place. We are not sustainable apart from God. You know, Lucifer too is a created being. He is not God. He is, in, he is in subjection to God, but he rebelled and rejected his place. And this rejection of one's place, this pride and arrogance, and this, re, again, rejection of our place is a key issue with him, and it's a key aspect of his deception. As he did with Adam and Eve, if we can be convinced that we are something more than we really are, we can quickly lose sight of what is really sustainable. You're welcome to turn with me to Proverbs 14, 12. It's one we know quite well. It's got a companion passage, same words, same basic idea in chapter 16, verse 25 of Proverbs also. It says in Proverbs 14 and verse 12, there is a way which seems right unto a man. We know when we read about Adam and Eve, it seemed right to them to go ahead and eat of the fruit. But the end thereof are the ways of death. This decision is not sustainable. I'd like to read from a couple commentaries. Kyle and Leach, to begin with. 
about this particular verse. I love how poetically they elaborate on what is said here in verse 12. The rightness is present only as a phantom, for it arises wholly from a terrible self-deception. The man judges falsely and goes astray when, very important here, without regard to God and his word, he follows his own opinions. The rightness is present only as a phantom. It exists, it doesn't really exist. And if he chooses that way, it has no sustainability. Matthew Henry, also on this passage. Their way seem, is seemingly fair. It seems right to themselves. They please themselves with a fancy that they are as they should be, that their opinions and practices are good. It is the ways of death, eternal death. Their iniquity will certainly be their ruin, and they will perish with a lie in their right hand. Self-deceivers will prove in the end to be self-destroyers. We might modify this a little bit because we understand the source of deception. Those who embrace or accept the deception are definitely on a path to destruction. Again, Mr. Jones covered some similar territory. We know that the tool of deception toys with our sense of reality and our sense of place. It places in us a seed of doubt or a sense of unfairness. It substitutes another reality, and I say reality in quotes because there is no other reality, but it makes it look like it's another reality. And it pits what's sustainable against what is not. There are so many examples that we see around us where God is dis dismissed in our culture, from the fact that he's not even acknowledged as existing, to I'll do what I want to do, and when things get a little rough, I'll turn to you for help. These scriptures that we've looked at not only have been re referenced here today earlier, again, these are concepts and scriptures that we're very familiar with. They have some things in common, though. We have heard these principles and these passages before. But I want to ask all of us today to consider, does it really impact us to the point where it changes our thinking? Because they can become cliche, they can be overused, they can lose their sensitivity and their strength and their power. Mr. Burnett last week talked about changing our patterns. Do these things that we just read about and these concepts impact us enough where we're still working on improving and changing and refining our patterns? As we talk to one another, can we hear a difference when we talk to each other between an elevated view of self and a very beautiful humility? Turn with me to Proverbs 3, 5. And as we read this, ask yourself as you're interacting with one another, do we see living examples of what we read here in Proverbs 3 and verse 5. 
Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your navel and marrow to your bones. You know, we've barely scratched the surface of scripture with our one passage in Genesis and a couple in Proverbs. But again, as Mr. Jones mentioned, this topic plays out throughout the Bible and into the lives of people today. All of us here are on a path that seeks to go after what is sustainable, what is eternal. Let's take a look at how that played out for Israel. And again, we heard a little bit of reference, you know, Hosea and some other passages earlier. Uh, but let's take a look at ancient Israel because we know that their story is given to us for our instruction. And we can see the history of some of their choices and how those played out. We'll take a look at Exodus 24. As you're turning there, Exodus 24, God has called everyone together. He's, well, first of all, he's rescued them from Pharaoh and his army. He's delivered them from slavery. In his compassion, he's given them commandments and instructions on how to live for their betterment uh, and a covenant that he would care for them. So we're, gonna, we're further down the line with all of these things in verse 3 of Exodus 24. Then Moses came and put before the people all of the words of the Lord and his laws, and all of the people answered with one voice, saying, Whatever the Lord has said, we will do. But did they? We fast forward a little bit. The parents have failed. They, they failed to follow God and trust in him, and now they're denied entrance into the promised land. Moses, in one of his last messages to their children, who will then go into the land, uh, before they cross over the Jordan, gives a concise picture of what is sustainable and what is not. He lets them know, this is your God and this is your place. We best know that in Deuteronomy 28 as the blessings and cursings chapter. I'll have you turn to Deuteronomy 30, and I'm just going to read the first verse of 28, and then we'll jump into chapter 30 uh, for another comment. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 is what I'm going to reference right now. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all of his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. And all of these blessings, blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now that entire first verse and part of the second verse have implied within them God's right to offer these things as our creator. And then that key statement there in verse 2, I'll do all of these th things for you because you know your place as the created and obey the voice of the Lord. So let's jump ahead to chapter 30. Chapter 30, and we'll start in verse 15. Verse 15. 
Deuteronomy 30 and verse 15. See, I've put before you today life and good. A couple comments I'd like to make here first. He is saying here, not just sustainable now, but these are things that are eternally sustainable. These things will lead to an eventual resurrection. God will always be God. There will never be a time when anyone overtakes him. This is an eternally sustainable frame of mind and awareness of place. And then the verse continues. I put before you life and death, sorry, life and good and death and evil. And so there's a choice to be made here. Verse 16, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you go to possess. Jumping down to verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. This blessing goes beyond us personally. Verse 20, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. You know, in loving generosity, God is telling them, here is what works. This way of living lasts indefinitely. This way of life will yield good, and it will do so into generations that go beyond each of us. Simply understand your place before the Almighty God. But we know the sad story of how it turned out for Israel in general. We'll take a look at two passages, brief passages. One of them's in Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, and we'll start in verse 23. Jeremiah 7 and verse 23. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and walk you in all of my ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and the imagination of their evil heart and went backward, not forward. Their choice was not sustainable. Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1. We'll start in verse 2. Another piece of this same story matches, matches nicely with what Mr. Jones read in Hosea, and I appreciated that it, he brought out the point that it comes full circle, that they will be redeemed, there will be a chance. But we know for us here and now, there's a choice to be made. And we saw how it played out as they made their choice. Isaiah 1 and verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. 
a last sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Let's jump down to verse 16 because it gives the solution. Wash, your, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away evil of your doings before my eyes and cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor and defend the fatherless. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In each of these case studies that we've looked at, <clears throat> they, have, they have a couple things in common. There's pride in an elevated view of self, and that is put over God and his directions. We saw with Adam and Eve, they chose to be like God and determine good and evil for themselves. In Proverbs, I know what's right, I'm wise, I have understanding. And in Exodus, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, we saw that Israel walked according to their own counsel. They did not acknowledge God in, their, in the way that they lived, and they did what was right in their own eyes. All of these went backwards. They went the opposite direction of what is spiritually sustainable. Why am I discussing this with you today? Why would I rehearse some of these things that are well-known principles? We all know them quite well. In a very short time, we're observing the fall festivals. We all know that these are extraordinary feasts that point to eternity. These feasts picture the goal. They picture what is eternally sustainable, a way of thinking, a way of living that will never come to an end. It's a way of life that we rejoice about because there's promise of no more death, no more pain, no more disease, no more injury, no more suffering, and no more loss. This is the pearl of great price. This is the treasure that's buried in the field. And it's worth everything that we have to strive for it. This spiritually sustainable way of life yields endless fruit. All of you know where to find this list of the fruit, Galatians 5, 22. We know that the fruits of the Spirit are joy, love, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and it says there, there's no law against these. These are truly sustainable. They can go on forever. This has been the challenge for those has, God has called throughout history. This is the core of the issue, is this choice between what is a dead end and what can go on indefinitely. Colossians 3 and verse 1. 
Colossians 3 and verse 1. This is speaking to us. The first verse identifies it as us. We are the audience. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. There are so many passages throughout the Bible that admonish us to seek something greater, to seek after something that's eternal, to seek what's pictured in the fall holy days. Most of us know from memory, Matthew 6, seek first, make it a priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But let's take a look at a few verses before Matthew 6, and Matthew 6 and verse 19. It's good for us to play verse 19 and 20 in our minds on a regular basis. Matthew 6 and verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. If you've lived long enough to lose some things because of those kinds of issues, I have hated to open my closet at certain moments in my past and find that the moths have gotten hold of things. I've found some solutions to uh, thwart that, but uh, it's a loss. Uh, and there's many more. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. When we read those passages, how would we rate our passion for what's being described here? Because the next verse says where your heart is. In other words, where our passion is. Uh, will it be found in verse 19? Or will it be found in verse 20? When we look at the flow of the plan of God outlined in the fall holy days, we see a need to remove that which is temporary and replace it with that which is eternally sustainable. And we see this happen with the entire created realm. And it is a choice that each human being must commit to when they have their turn. So when we consider each fall holy day, we can see how this begins to play out. Let's rehearse them just a little bit. Feast of trumpets. Remember that last word is plural. Trumpets. As we have heard before, Things have to happen before the seventh trumpet occurs. It's essential that all that harms, all that is short-lived, all that is temporary, be subdued just before Christ returns to this earth at the seventh trumpet blast. The saints are resurrected. Christ is established as the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. And we know that famous statement that there is no end to his government. The Day of Atonement pictures a beautiful moment when it's possible for all of mankind who've ever lived to have a chance to be at one with God, to be united with him. This is accomplished with the removal of our adversary, the deceiver, 
and mankind's humble submission to our Creator. It's interesting on that day that we fast. Our fasting on that day reinforces our understanding of our place in relation to God. Just this past week, our Cagua Daily Bible Verse for Tuesday, August 23rd, had to do with Psalms 35 and verse 13 and the passage in that that says, I humbled myself with fasting. I really appreciated the follow-up commentary, and so I'd like to quote from uh, what was written for that particular section. This verse simply states a principle about godly fasting shown throughout the Bible. Fasting is designed to humble us. When we go without food and drink that sustains our lives, we soon realize how fragile we are. We see how weak we are physically, which can help us recognize our spiritual weakness as well. Getting a clearer perspective of how great God is and how small and sinful we are can help us fight against pride and grow in humility. Once these things are in place, peace can exist. Teaching of the truth can commence. And people can come to know God in what is pictured in the Feast of Tabernacles. And then we know for the last great day, the rest of humanity will have their turn. Satan will be loosed again, and each individual will also have to make a choice just like Adam and Eve were given a choice between what is temporal and what is eternal. That choice continues from the beginning to when no other human exists anymore. You could say our eternity hangs on our humble awareness of our place and relationship to our, 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 our almighty creator. I would like to read a little longer passage in Psalms. It's a Psalm of David. It's found in Psalms 103. And I would like to conclude with this Psalm. Psalm 103, starting in verse one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all of your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction and who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is the mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, 
so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all of his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure, Bless the Lord, all of his works and all of his places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's a beautiful reminder of a mindset that's illustrated by David, who was a man after God's own heart. It's a complicated thing to look at his life and to kind of come to grips with that. When you read this psalm, you get a window into the depth of his understanding David knew his place in relation to God, and he reminds us in a few verses, verses 15 and 16, of what the reality is of our place. We are like grass. Um, we disappear very quickly. But if we turn to God, if we obey him, we have a chance at eternity. So as we conclude today, let us remember our place. Let us worship our God in word and in deed. And let's go forward to the fall festivals and let's set our attention on seeking that which is spiritually and eternally sustainable.